Welcome to the North Shore Fellowship Podcast, a place to explore the intersection of God's story with our lives. Last week we were talking about the temple, the access we all have to God in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says we're, we're a type of architecture, spiritual architecture. A building built together to be God's dwelling place on earth and the place where people can encounter him. And Paul doesn't stop there. He talks about how Jesus is the sacrifice. That's more temple language getting put to use. Uh, he's the sacrifice that provides us access to God's presence. The Bible also uses the idea of images when it talks about temples. And we often call these idols, uh, but in, in Genesis 1, uh, we're uh, that same word gets applied to humans, and we're called images of God. And unlike the idols of the world, we have to be alive to represent our God because he hears and he sees uh, and he knows and he's, he's living. So uh, Paul is going to move in chapter 4 into the Christian life, how we look like God in the world. Being his image requires looking like him. And that's what we're going to see this week as we start talking about the Christian life. That's the context for it here in chapter four. Heather, how has Paul prepared us to jump into his discussion of the Christian life? What has he done for us in those first three chapters? How would you sum that up? Yeah. So as we've seen in chapters one through three, he has given us by his spirit and as his image bearers, we've all been given adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins hope of a future inheritance, and the presence of God's Spirit. And we've been given this for a mission, for a purpose that the world would know and glorify Him. We were talking off mic a little bit about how it's like we all have the same uniform. We're all on the same team, regardless of our age or whether male or female, uh, whether we're Jew or Gentile. We're all given this package of things. So we all, in one very important sense, look alike in Christ because of the salvation that we've been given. Yeah. And in that metaphor, then we're also all given the same purpose. A team gets together and gets the uniform and the shoes and the ball and whatever else, they all get the same thing in order that they can go and win the game. So yeah, ideally your goal is to win the game uh, and then have a good time doing so. Yeah, there's a unity of purpose that uh, that uh, we're going to see here in chapter four, but there's also diversity within that. Um, one of the ways that we kind of frame this up is that um, Paul has talked to us about salvation for three chapters, and now he's talking to us about the working out of that salvation and practical ways in our lives and the, the transformation of uh, uh, not just our identity, but our behavior, uh, the things that we do day in, day out. So going back to that whole team uh, metaphor, thinking of my granddaughter being two years old and playing on the soccer team, she first has to know even what soccer is. She has to know that she's got a uniform, that there is a ball, she has shoes, and then she's going to learn that she needs to try to win the game. And then after that, and this would be years down the road, she'd be learning, oh, you're really good at defense. You're going to play this position. Or this child's going to learn, no, you'd be a really good goalie. Um, they each are gifted uniquely for the purpose of the team. Yeah. So Paul will uh, start to elaborate on that. Um, he does, again, he, he puts a lot of emphasis on unity in these opening verses of chapter four. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. 
Um, and, and he does describe throughout chapter four, this, this one mission that we all have of holiness, um, uh, bearing character that, that really does reflect Christ-likeness. Um, but then he takes a huge chunk of time and really breaks down uh, the individual gifts that actually are quite diverse. Um, they all have the same goal, uh, winning as it were, uh, the, uh, the transformation of the world, um, being brought, uh, to bend the knee to King Jesus and, um, surrendered to him. But, uh, there's a lot of different roles that, uh, that Paul highlights here. Well, Jason, there are places where Paul lists a lot of different gifts that people in the body have, but this doesn't seem to be one of them. Yeah, he only lists five here, and it's it's really foundational things like being an apostle, evangelist, um, a preacher, teacher. Um, but he goes on to say that the, the point of those gifts in uh, verse 12 is to prepare God's people for works of service so that all of us are actually working and laboring together. Um, so that somehow when I'm, when I'm teaching, like I'm encouraging other people to use their gifts, uh, even if they aren't teachers. Um, if, if someone is an evangelist, they're, they're bringing someone into the faith and that person themselves may never really become much of an evangelist, but they might have other gifts that they bring and that they use for the building up of the body. Jason, it's interesting. Uh, the translation you're reading had, uh, something about the work of service and the ESV in the same place has to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is a, a really important thing when I think about our role, particularly as teachers, one of the things listed here, preachers, that uh, the end of my gift isn't to be spectacular or even to just vaguely grow other people deep in their souls, but there's actual work that each of them every uh, citizen of the new kingdom has to do. And it's a it's a diversity of gifts. I, I don't have all the gifts that everybody else has. My role is to equip the saints or uh, those that believe in Jesus for the work of ministry or for service of all kinds. I like how you said that. The end of your gift isn't, hey, I've done it. I'm a really good preacher or I've figured out how to keep everybody's attention for 20 minutes. The end of your gift is working together as the body, equip each other so that your gift then helps somebody else in our body become equipped in their gift, right? Is that what you all are saying? That's right. And I don't know that we always connect that dot for those dots for people, but we do work on trying to be the best preacher we can be like in preaching team and, you know, thinking critically about what we're doing, working hard at it. But ultimately, What's going to make the preaching good is if it's fruitful in people's lives. And that's not entirely on us. That's on people who hear and, and, uh, the spirit working in the hearers to produce fruit. Um, and that's, uh, that's a process that we all get to engage in. When I listen to preaching and teaching, I, it's on me to take that in and to uh, internalize it, to believe the promises, uh, and to orient myself to obedience and service and response. So one metaphor for this is if you think about a grocery store, you've got certain people that have certain roles that are teaching, training, writing policies, setting when the store is going to open and close, all these things. And they're training the employees to do the work of grocery store. But if the, the people doing the teaching just did the training and said, okay, everybody can go home now, then you wouldn't have a grocery store. You need the people to stay and do the work. In fact, it is the people who stay and do the work 
that we interact with the most. They're the ones we see restocking and checking out and answering questions. And I think that's pretty a good analogy for our role as teachers and preachers, that our role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if the saints don't do the work of the ministry, it doesn't get done. One example of this in, in our church is, um, let's just take middle school. We've recently celebrated a couple of things that have happened uh, with the youth group, and that's that's deeply encouraging. And there's a lot of activity on middle school youth night. Um, but that's not just a credit to Crystal and Rob, although they're doing fantastic work and we're super proud of them. It's also on the parents who uh, do the hard work of bringing kids who, who might be nervous on the front end. I talked with someone who went through that process of bringing their kid the first time to a, I think it was a, an open house in the park uh, to kind of get to know people and how nerve wracking that was and how hard that was. It's also um, a great credit to Laney, who does so much good work in the, the elementary years with a whole team of people, not just Laney, um, leading a whole team of people and getting our kids ready and excited about church and about being part of a body so that they're willing and able to, to slip into middle school ministry. So anyway, that's one example of how on the, on the surface, when you think of middle school, you're going to think of Robin Crystal and George and a few other volunteers. Um, but really there's so much more going into it than just that. There's the kids themselves and their attitudes. And I love seeing Crystal and Rob's enthusiasm about the kids themselves and what, what God is doing in them and getting them excited about participating. Your description there reminds me of a living organism, which is another example that Paul gives that we're the body of Christ. And when you think about that, with what you were just saying, that that's just, it's complicated. There's so much to it, cells that are traveling throughout our body. And I, this is not my gifted area, so I can't elaborate too much further, but it does remind me of that. Yeah. So we talked about the three images Paul uses, uh, temple, the human body, and then agricultural images like a, a, a vine or, or something like this. The three images the New Testament uses for describing the church. And it's interesting that two of those are living organisms where life has to flow through something and each little piece is bumping up against another piece and dependent on that piece. So love that. It's a great analogy because there's so many different parts of our body that look and act nothing like the other parts. And as you zoom in and out, a cell looks nothing like an arm and it behaves nothing like an arm. And yet they're both essential. And you can imagine, and I think this is actually a medical condition, but you can imagine that one part of the body wants one thing or is striving toward one goal and another part of the body is striving toward another goal. It can lead to incredible illness and disease when one part of the body is trying to function to an, an end that another part doesn't want. And the immune system is a great example of this where it's fighting what parts of the body are trying to do. So we've got several metaphors on the table, one of like little kids playing soccer, and we've got one of the body trying to do different things, we've got one of the store, and it has to do something. What is our function? What are we trying to accomplish together? I just heard somebody give an illustration of just thinking about a baby with a great big head and how their body is so tiny, but their head is so big. And as they grow, their body will actually eventually fit their head and it won't look like just a great big head. And isn't that what we're doing? We as the body, we're growing up. Christ, who is the head. 
it's it's one of the most comical things about human development like how big those heads are relative to the rest of their body and they hold their hands up and like their head is taking up the entire space between their hands which you can imagine that on a on an adult human how silly that would look it's remarkable it really is that's a great image for the um what paul is doing here maybe that's where he got the idea i don't know um, I've never thought of it in those terms. Uh, he he clearly is using Jesus as the model for us to grow into. So here's what maturity looks like. Maturity looks like Jesus Christ. So you can just sum it up in just one word, one person. Uh, and then in all kinds of different ways, he fleshes this out. Um, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness in verse 24. Um, being kind to one another and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So imitating, um, God in Christ who loves us and gives himself for us. And all those things are pointers where Paul is taking this, this final model, this final destination that we're headed towards. And we're supposed to be growing up into that image. And that makes sense of where Paul goes next when he says, Now I say and testify in the Lord that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. If we are the body and we're growing up into Christ the head and we're supposed to become more like him, then it makes all the sense in the world. And Paul almost shouldn't even have to say it. But if if that's the case, if we're the body that fits Jesus, then we can't walk any way we want to. There's a particular pattern of walking that we need to adopt. Yeah. So it can't look like the world uh, around us. It has to look different. And there is a pretty confrontational uh, black and white difference here that Paul Paul has in terms of the direction that we're going and uh, the direction that we might have lived if we just lived among the nations. Uh, And I don't think that means we're going to get it right because he just he talks about forgiveness and he talks about. Um, the dangers of living as the Gentiles live. And, and so that, that must mean that that's a very real potential problem for Christians. I think he's taking that very seriously. Uh, Chris, how do you see verse 15, um, speaking the truth in love, uh, we in all things grow up into him who is the head in Christ. What does that look like, speaking the truth in love? So I think this verse means that we are supposed to speak the truth, and we know the truth from Scripture, and sometimes the truth is hard to hear. We see in people's lives, that they have a need of hearing the truth, of being sometimes corrected. And so we're supposed to speak the truth, even when it challenges the way someone else lives. But we're always supposed to speak the truth in love. So this gives us the timbre of the way that we're supposed to speak the truth. We're not supposed to come celebrating that we've caught them doing something wrong, and here's the truth, and and be prideful about it, and hold it over against them. But instead, we come in love. So that's our I think that's our motivation. That's our posture. He then jumps into another really interesting picture in verse 16. Uh, it's a little bit like these robots that fix themselves. They identify a problem and they, they go to work and fix something inside them. Uh, the, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, and it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So you might think of the church is one of these robots that's self-healing and self-constructing. Um, but again, working from that blueprint of Jesus himself uh, so that it's building itself up to look like him. And we're this new creation, this new humanity that is the way that we were meant to be when God created us. Yeah. According to this original design, God still has the same plan you know, from Genesis on. 
um, for these living images uh, to look like him and uh, reflect him to one another and to all of creation. And so Paul helps us understand what it means to be this new humanity in the end of Ephesians 4 when he says in verse 26, be angry, but don't sin. In verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. In verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I love that he gives specific examples to help us to know how to live, to help us to be like Jesus. Yeah, and in each of those, he's actually, he's he's giving us something not to do, but then also pushing us towards something to do. You're supposed to do something with that anger, not let the sun go down on that anger. Um, instead of stealing, you're supposed to be a flourishing, working human who can share with others. And, and then using your voice, not for unwholesome talk or lying, um, but to build others up. So there's this very lively sense in which you are coming back to life and coming back to the fullness of what it means to be human when we talk about the transformation that happens to people here. I'm glad you said that because when you start pointing out just the don't do this, don't do this, it it can sound like we're just supposed to follow a bunch of rules as Christians, forgetting that we are a new humanity, that this is exciting, that this is good news and that God is doing a great work in us. Yeah, we like the rules too, but um, we also want that, that that bigger picture. I think I think one thing that's always super important whenever we kind of start talking about the Christian life, it can be very easy for us to think of well, Ephesians one through three was about salvation, and God did that, and now we're talking about what we do. And and I think it's very important and deeply encouraging to me to think of God still being at work as I'm at work. And Paul sums this up really well in, in Philippians, where he says that um, it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So when we're seeing all these things that we're supposed to not do or do in Ephesians, we're seeing not just our responsibility, but God's own work. Um, remember, he's the one, according to Ephesians 2.10, who prepared good works for us to walk in. These are his creation. So uh, we sometimes say around here that sanctification, this Christian life, is double 100%. It's not you or God. It's God and us working together um, for his purposes. Next time, we'll talk about some of the context uh, where this Christian life gets lived out. We'll see that in chapter 5. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.